0: One of the things I was able to do over my vacation is finish a book that I've been working on for a while. It's a hard philosophical text called After Virtue by Alastair McIntyre. And it's probably one of the most important texts of moral philosophy in the last century, if not the last few centuries. So, there are many important points in this book. But the one that really struck me was... That we can't live a good life outside of narrative. Which is to say, every generation, every era, every culture has a way of viewing life. A way of thinking about how we live and what the good life is. And so MacIntyre offers, for example, the importance of the Iliad and the Odyssey, but especially the Iliad, in Greek culture, is that Greek culture saw life as one big conflict. And in order to live a good life, you had to know what it looked like to be good in conflict, to have an excellence in conflict. Not just how to win a war, but how to live in that conflict. So the Iliad is an exploration in ways in which different people enter into conflicts and how they live and what that means for having a good life. Okay, well, with Christianity, we have the Bible, we have a lot of other works. It seems that in the medieval era, the narrative of life was pilgrimage, that somehow our life looks like a pilgrimage. And if we can think of life in terms of a pilgrimage, we can answer the question, What is necessary to have a good pilgrimage? And those necessities are called virtues, and living them out helps us to have a good pilgrimage or a good life. Well, this point about the fact that narrative is necessary for morality or narrative is necessary to live a good life was very helpful to me. It really hit home to me for two reasons. One, it helped me re-articulate one of the things that I love and appreciate about Catholicism. Since really dedicating my life to the Catholic faith, I said, I love that it connects me to the past, that I have a connection to generations who came before me. I was born in 1988, and so I can't speak for previous generations. My generation has generally absolutely rejected the past. I was definitely raised in an era and a culture where we had narrative that we were so much better, and this comes from the civil rights um, struggle, which is to say in some senses we have advanced, there is progress, but that has caused my generation to think we are so much better than previous generations, there is nothing we can learn from them, that somehow we have transcended everything the past has given us, we can reject it entirely and create our own narrative. That's never sat well with me. I think there's a lot of wisdom to be learned from those who have come before. Um, Even if there are struggles that we've overcome, it doesn't mean that there are not babies in that bathwater. And we need to pay attention to what previous generations have told us. Well, McIntyre helped me rearticulate this and say, well, what Catholicism gives me isn't just a connection to past generations, but truly it gives me a comprehensive narrative. It gives me a way of viewing life, a way of viewing living that allows me to live a good life. Because I have this narrative that has been used by millennia of generations, and it has proven true. Those who see life in a certain way, living according to certain principles, in a certain story, the story of Christ and his people, they have ways of living that have proven to be helpful and that lead to happiness. Reading McIntyre also helped me reframe the way I think about preaching from this ambo. There are many tasks that I have to accomplish as a preacher. I have to teach the faith. I have to convert lives. But, another one to add to the list now, I have to provide the narrative of the Christian people. What are the things that we think of as living a good Christian life? Who are the Christian people? What is our narrative? Because only if we know that, if we know the framework in which we live, the story in which our lives fit, will we understand what are the good things necessary to live those lives. Now, that's a big task. I cannot give you the entire narrative of the Christian people today. Um, I'm hoping, as I dwell on this, that it'll come out in future homilies and, and it's a good paradigm to work with for the next few months. We'll see. Sometimes my homily is getting written real quick on Saturday afternoon, so we'll see if I can pull this off. But today, I think it's sufficient to talk about one phrase from our second reading. In it, St. John writes, We see what love the Father has bestowed on us, that we may be called the children of God. Yet so we are. Beloved, we are God's children now. So, who are we as the baptized, as the community of the baptized? We are the children of God. Now, like I said, narrative's important. This is not my comfort zone. I like to hammer on ideas. I like to live in the realm of, like, this is the idea and this is how it logically connects. But... If it's helpful to think about a story, if it's helpful to understand these concepts in terms of something we can relate to, the story we might think about to understand what it means to be children of God is the story, and there are a couple of them, they are Dickensian stories, there's the musical Annie, which I'll probably reference a few times, but it's the story of an orphan who is taken from a difficult situation and brought into an unimaginably amazing situation. So, to use Annie, for example, she's in an orphanage, she's verbally, emotionally abused, her dignity is not respected, she doesn't have parents, she doesn't have a home, she doesn't have a place where she can identify with. And then, through a series of events, she is brought into the home of the richest man in the city. She is made a full member of that household, a child of this man. She is given full rights in the household. In this story, older era, there's, you know, live-in staff in this house. And even though she was an orphan, the lowest of the low, if you will, in this social structure, she now can actually tell the staff what to do if she wants to. Like, that's where she is in this household. There are many stories like that in our literature, and it's very helpful to understand. Because when we hear child of God, we often think, oh, child means innocent or simple or pure. And it can, but not in this context. In this context, St. John means it legally. We are children of God because we have been brought into the household of God. As the New Testament will say in other places, we are adopted sons and daughters of God. So, use that orphan narrative. Now, if you're an orphan, chosen out of nothing by God the Father... So not just Daddy Warbucks who's rich, not just a king, you have Disney narratives where somebody who's poor or an orphan or whatever is brought into the palace, but everything. God is more than just rich, he's more than just a king. We're not just brought into the palace, we're brought into the household of our creator, the household of God. It's a crazy idea. And unlike Annie, we're not chosen by God because we're optimistic and tenacious, We have these attractive qualities. God chose us even though we were sinners, in squalor, alone, pitiable, living lives that showed that we would rather stay in that squalor than live in his house, where we reject him over and over again. He still chose us. He still brought us into his household and decided to call us sons and daughters. So if you're pulled out of that squalor, if you're pulled out off the street, and brought into the palace of the king, what's the first thing that you have to do in this story? Well, first you have to learn how to live in a palace. If you're raised on the street, you don't know what a palace is. You don't know how people live, what the mannerisms are, when is dinner served, how am I supposed to act, how am I supposed to dress, what am I supposed to do, what are the expectations of this father who has chosen me, what does he want me to do? All of these things that we don't know because we were brought in. Well, we were baptized as infants. Unlike Annie, we weren't part of the story at the beginning. We could run away from it. We could be overwhelmed. We could say, we don't want to live according to these rules. We don't want to fit into this household. We don't like it. We could run away. We could reject our adoption. We could reject the household we've been brought into. And of course, many, many of the baptized have done this. All of us know somebody who's walked away from the gift of their adoption. But those of us who are here and listening to this homily, good chance we've said, yeah, this adoption is a huge gift. It is a gift that I want to live into. I just don't know how. So the first thing that we have to do is to learn and to listen, to watch our Father who's adopted us. How does he act? To learn from the other people in the house. Unlike Annie, we're not the only one who's been adopted. There are hundreds of thousands of millions of billions of people who have been adopted as sons and daughters of God. This household is full of people. So we can ask, we can learn, we can say, Hey, when is dinner served? What am I supposed to do? What does this look like? There are clearly leaders in this house, people we can look to and be like, Oh yeah, that person really knows what's going on. I'm going to go ask them. We might call them the saints, if you want to follow this analogy. But then, of course, the real one who knows what's going on. Turns out, our father, the one who has adopted us and brought us into his household, he actually has a biological child, or a natural child, whose name is Jesus. Jesus really seems to know what's going on. We read in the Gospel, for example, I know mine, and mine know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Over and over again in the Gospel of John, Jesus talks about how he's the one who knows the Father. And those who know Jesus know the Father. So we're brought into this household. We feel absolutely loved and chosen by God, because that's what he's done. He's chosen us specifically to be in his household, to be adopted. But he's off doing a lot of stuff, right? We need to know who this Father is and what he expects of us. And Jesus is the one who knows. We look to Jesus, he's the one who knows everything about the Father. He's been with the Father since the beginning. He helped write the rules of the house. We look to him and we say, Jesus, what's going on here? What am I supposed to do? What's this supposed to look like? And he teaches us, and we learn from him. Just as we learn from the others who have learned from Jesus. But remember... We're not in this house as guests or strangers. We're in this house as children. And so Jesus doesn't regard us as guests or strangers. He doesn't show us around like, Oh, welcome to the house, take off your shoes, put your coat here, with the expectation that we'd be gone after dinner's done. We are members of the household. We are children of our Father. And so Jesus treats us as brothers and sisters. And what does an older brother do? for his younger brothers and sisters, he protects them. He looks after them. As he continues in the gospel, I am the good shepherd. I will lay down my life for my sheep. A good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. A hired man who is not a shepherd and whose sheep are not his own sees a wolf coming and leaves the sheep and runs away, and the wolf catches and scatters them. This is because he works for pay and has no concern for the sheep. Jesus does not work for pay. He does not take care of us because we're just temporary guests. We are his brothers and sisters, and he will lay down his life for us just as any good older brother and sister would. He is our good shepherd, and he will take care of us because we are members of his household. We are his family. Now, of course, anyone who's adopted doesn't spend their whole life in the four walls of the house. They have a life. They go out into the world, and we will too. We've been adopted by God, our Father. Our Father has taken us into his household. We also go outside that household from time to time. Now, when you're adopted, a lot of times that comes with a new last name, right? To to show membership in the family, we change the last name. But that name doesn't feel natural for a while until we feel like we actually are members of the household, like that we feel natural in the house, we feel like we belong. How much different, or how how much more for those of us who claim the name Christian, who claim the name Christ, how long until we feel like that label applies to us. Nevertheless, when we go out into the world as a Christian with that new name, we represent our household, we represent our father, I know it's gossipy and tabloidy, but the British royal family has been in the news recently, and they're a helpful analogy for what I'm talking about. The whole drama with the royal family is, what does it mean to represent the queen? Because everywhere Prince Charles goes, or Prince William goes, or previously Prince Harry goes, they're there as a representative of the queen. This is how the British royal family works. There is no public and private. There's only being a representative of the household. Well, if we represent the king of heaven, how much more so is that true for us? We've been brought into this household. We have been made children. Now, everywhere we go, we reflect our father. Another analogy, we can all think of families in the county we grew up in, so maybe Watcom County, but there are long-term families, big families. Everybody knows them. And so you hear the name, and you're like, oh, you're part of that family. And now, every time somebody does something, it reflects back on the family that everybody knows. My family used to be like this in Ferndale before all of us moved south to Seattle. Well, if that's the way it happens in human societies, that's also how it happens in the household of God. We are children of God. No matter what we do, no matter whether we want to or not, we represent our household everywhere we go. People know that what household we belong to, and we represent Him. So how do we do that? Well, if we've done the time to learn what our father expects of us, how it is to live in his household, it's not that hard to live outside the household either. We simply ask, well, what would my father do in this situation? How would he interact with this person? How would he bring his resources to bear on this situation? We act as agents, as representatives of our father everywhere we go. Now, that might be overwhelming for some of us. We might not like that. We might, like Prince Harry, decide, we don't want to represent my family over where I go. I want some freedom. He can do whatever he wants, I suppose. I don't really care. I'm not British. But for us, if we were to say that, it would be to reject our adoption. Because unlike Prince Harry, we didn't start in the palace. We started in the orphanage. We started on the street. We started apart from the household of God and were only chosen later by the free gift of God himself. And so if we say, oh, I want to be part of the household, but I don't want to represent God. I want to be part of the household, but I don't really want this connection to the Father. I don't want people to think of me when they think of the Father. What have we done? We've rejected our adoption. We've said, I don't actually want to be part of the household. I don't want to live like these people live. I don't want to go to dinner when they go to dinner. I don't want to dress like they dress. I don't want to be part of this family that I have been freely chosen into. Instead, our narrative as Christian people is that we have been freely chosen by God. He is the one who chose us out of nothingness, into his palace, into his kingdom, into his home, As Christians, we live together with our brothers and sisters, all of whom have been adopted, except one, Jesus, who is our older brother, who takes care of us, who teaches us, who looks after us. All of us have been given this great gift of adoption, and I hope we never stop giving thanks for such a great gift.